Glad you're here to continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Nothing has changed from last Sunday. It is still true that the promise is greater than the problem. That's right. If you weren't here last week, go back and check this online. The promise is greater than the problem. Jesus said, we're going to the other side of the lake. And that's his word. And if he says we're going to the other side... We're going to the other side. His promise is greater than any problem. When they get to the other side of the lake, they encounter there what's known as the Gerasene demoniac. If you've uh, ever heard, uh, the, the, you remember this story, the, uh, possessed with all these demons, Jesus says, what's your name? Name is Legion, for we are many. So he has countless demons, and Jesus casts out these demons, showing he has authority over the natural disaster, the storm, and now he has authority over demons. They then cross back over to the other side of the lake, and that's where we pick up our story today. Mark chapter 5, turn to verse 21. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Mark 5, verse 21. Now they're, they're crossing back over to the other side. This is where they were. Capernaum, Jesus has got some, uh, some growing fame there. And we'll read this story in its entirety first, and then we'll comment on it. This is, in fact, a sandwich story. Mark does this a lot in his gospel, a sandwich story. So he starts a story, ends a story, but right in the middle he inserts a story within a story. And he does that on purpose. He does it not only because this is how it happened, but because he's showing us these stories are connected and we need to see how they're connected. We're going to see here three people, two truths, and one question. Got it? Three people, two truths, one question. If you're a note taker, put three people Two truths, one question at the top of your page, and throughout this message, you'll be able to fill that in. And then at the end of the message, I'll tell you what I think the answers are. And then you can come up to me afterward and be like, actually, my answers were better. Here, you should have gone with this. And they may be, and that'll give me a good idea. But here we go. Three people, two truths, one question. Let's roll. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Well, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? <laughs> and his disciples said to him, you, you, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace 
be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing or ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them, you know, give her something to eat. (laughs) Three people. Two truths, one question. First, the people. The people are polar opposites. We meet first, and it shows us one of the two truths. So you're going to get a couple of the people here, and I'll, give you, I'll go ahead and give you the first truth. Y'all, his love is wide. His love is wider than you know. Christ's love is wide. That's the first of the two truths in this story. His love is wide. And you know what? Since we're here, I'll give you the second one. His love is wide, and his power is deep. His love is wide, and his power is deep. I think that's it. Scott's going to come and we can close. <laughs> but that's it. His love is wide, y'all. His power is deep. Okay, his love is wide. First we meet the prominent Jairus. Jairus, it says in verse 22, is a ruler of the synagogue. What is that? The ruler of the synagogue is not an ordained clergy. He's not a rabbi, but his, he, like a caretaker. He would be entrusted with the finances of the local synagogue. He would make sure the scrolls are in good order. He would order new ones when they uh, wore out, make sure that all their scrolls were charged up as they, as they tried to find the passage in Scripture. He, uh, uh, would, he would, it was a caretaker. It would be like uh, a ruler of the synagogue would be like a Baptist chairman of the deacons, right, or chairman of trustees, prominent, prominent member of the community. And seeing him... What did he do? He said, hey, I'm a prominent member of the community, Jesus. I demand help. No, verse 22, look what he says. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. All that prominence goes out the window. He's a ruler of the synagogue. The, 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 the Pharisees are the religious, religiously powerful people. They didn't like Jesus. Here's Jairus going to Jesus. You know why? Because if the choice is between upsetting religious people and your daughter's life on the line, that ain't no choice. So he goes right to Jesus, falls at his feet. That prominence is out the window, and he needs Jesus' help, and he's not afraid to admit it. And it is not lost on Jesus that this prominent member of the community is worshiping at the feet of Jesus, begging for help. Let me say a word to the prominent people in this room today. There are prominent people in our community right here in this room. Maybe you're watching online. As I look out, I see prominent people. It's okay. Don't be modest. It's not a bad thing. Do you know why you're prominent? What do I mean by prominent? You've excelled at your profession. You are well respected in the community and in this church. You've made some good decisions. You've done some things, you know, right? You, you, you know, you, 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 you have some sense of order in your life. And so you have gained 
some prominence. There's no need to be ashamed of that. There's no need to hold. I mean, don't be modest. You're a prominent member of the community. Listen to me clearly. Jairus was a prominent member of the community. What does that mean? That means he was always in the position where he was helping other people. See, that's, that's what happens. When you become a prominent person, you're the one who's in control, and you're the one who's helping others, right? So Jairus, man, he was the chairman of the board of every local nonprofit, and he was, and they, you, know, you know who to go to when you need help for your nonprofit? You go to Jairus. And Jairus would cut a check, and he'd be like, don't tell anybody. Jairus always giving anonymously, and oh, it's great. How quickly, prominent people, how quickly, what you need to know what Jairus, what does this mean? This is a word, this is a word, prominent people. How quickly Jairus went from the one who was always the helper to desperately needing the help. What's the point? No matter how many things in your life you can control, listen to me, prominent people, you can't control the most important things in your life. And do not for one second, do not for one second think, because you're always the helper, and that's great, I'm I'm glad you're the helper, but because you're so used to being the helper, don't think for one minute, well, Jesus, he's really for the other people. He he should spend his time on other people. I've, I've got so much, I'm the helper. Do not think for one minute that Jesus is not looking for you to be just as dependent on him. You need him. Every parent in here knows that feeling, don't you? You say, well, I'm not a prominent person. Yeah, but you're a parent. If you're a parent, do you understand what I'm talking about? That, that sense that there's so much you try to control about your kid's life, and you realize there's so little that you can control of what really matters. So what do you do? What do you do if you're a parent and you can't control? You do exactly what Jairus did. You get at the feet of Jesus Christ. And you implore on behalf of your kid, whether they're 12 or whether they're 60, you go on behalf of your child. And you go to the Lord Jesus and you implore. This prominent person goes to him and he begs. And what does Jesus do to this prominent person? Does he say, look, I've given you enough already. You have prominence in this community. Fix it. Is that what he does? Look at verse 24. And he, verse 24 says, he went with him. Listen to me. If you are a prominent person, listen carefully. I have a word for you, prominent person. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And it is not lost on Jesus that everybody's always coming to Jairus for help. It is not lost on him the humility it takes for prominent people to get at their feet of Jesus and say, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. He loves you. He loves prominent people. But he doesn't just love prominent people. Look at what happens next. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Could there be a bigger contrast to prominent people than this woman? This is like the opposite of prominence. This is non-prominence. This woman who had had an issue of blood for 12 years means she is in, well, I mean, for one thing, we don't know her name. You get Jairus' name. Mark doesn't spend, Mark doesn't name a lot of people. So the fact he named Jairus, oh, this guy's important, doesn't even name the woman. So for 2,000 years, we've been preaching about this woman. And because we can't just call her the woman, we have to call her something. We as preachers should be ashamed of ourselves for 2,000 years. We have named this woman after her infirmity. She's the woman with the issue of blood. Her, the, the thing that she's ashamed of is what we literally call her. Her name is her shame. Can you imagine your deepest, darkest secret, the worst thing about you? That's what we're going to call you. Can you imagine? For 2,000 years we've been calling her the woman with the issue of blood. So she doesn't even get a name. And on top of that, her name is her shame. She was in physical pain. She was in social pain. And she was in religious, spiritual pain. I can explain. Why do I say physical pain? 
A hemorrhage of blood for 12 years just means it's chronic. The fact that the Bible says when she was healed, she immediately knew it, shows us she felt relief from pain. So she's not just in chronic disease, she has a chronic pain with this disease. Mark, and he's often so blunt in his gospel, you got to love Mark. Mark is almost brutal in assessing the reality of the situation. He tells us in verse 26, oh, she had been to doctors. And the doctor's quote-unquote cure was worse than her disease. Listen to this line. Oh, she had suffered much under many physicians. He's calling it like he sees it. And all the doctors did would take her money, spent all that he had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, medical practice. I know we have a lot of folks in the medical field here. Listen, medical practice, what you all do today, you got heroes. What you do today, you got to understand, is vastly different than medical practice in ancient times. So we have some ancient Jewish documents. You can go back and look in the Midrash, and several commentaries point this out. They prescribe, quote-unquote, cures for some of these diseases. In fact, there are cures for uh, 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 hemorrhage, uh, issue of blood, blood hemorrhage. We, we have recorded these cures. Now remember, I'm calling these cures. And there's several steps you can try. Here's a cure according to an ancient Jewish document for this particular ailment. Here's what you do. Drink a goblet of wine containing rubber that has been ground into a powder, alum, and garden crocuses. Mash that up into the wine and drink it. So like, if your disease doesn't kill you, the pulverized rubber probably would. Do you understand what Mark's saying? She grew worse. It's very expensive, only to discover after you do it, you are worse. If that doesn't work, can't make this up. Another treatment consisted of a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine, administered, and the administrator must give the summons, arise out of your flow of blood, and then you'll be cured. Can you imagine? Two Persian onions and call me in the morning. Like, no, it doesn't work. It's very expensive. Where are you going to find Persian onions? My favorite, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a certain kind of cloth. It's linen during one part of the year, cotton during another part of the year. And if you get that just right, you too can be cured of a blood hemorrhage. Because we all know the ashes of an ostrich egg when carried in linen has nothing to do, right? You understand, this is, this, is, this is sorcery, right? This is barely, and it's very expensive to go find an ostrich egg. And how are you gonna burn it in such a way to restore its ashes? Where are you gonna get a linen cloth? You spend all your money on Persian onions and pulverized rubber, you with me? So the cure is worse than the disease. And so you can see how it'd be very expensive, not help at all, and Mark has no problem taking shots at doctors of his day saying they took her money, but her real suffering was under the doctors. And I find it, side note, I find it exquisitely funny that when the physician, Dr. Luke, tells his version of this story in his gospel, he writes simply, she was incurable. The physical suffering. But social suffering, now she's broke. If she had any means, she doesn't have them now. And religious suffering, some of you are ahead of me on this. Spiritual suffering, she's an outcast from a religious community. You know why, right? If you know your Bible, you know this is a Jewish community. They honor the Torah, the Old Testament law. And the law divides things into clean and unclean. And that is a whole other sermon, why God's law, clean, unclean. That's a whole other sermon, and we'll spend a lot of time on that one day. I can do it real short right now. Um, when you have a brand new people that you brought out of Egypt, you don't have time for nuance. 
So when I teach my little kids, the first time I teach them about how to work a stove, there's very little nuance when it comes to fire and stoves. Here's what I tell them. This bad, stay away, right? Any questions, right? Okay, as they get older, I teach them things like, here's how to turn on the stove, here's how to remember how to turn it off, here's how, later, okay? But when I raise a people, there's no nuance. God's raising his children up, and he says, listen, here's how we're gonna do this. God is holy, okay? Don't separate, don't, 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 don't take a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of some pagan God and put them together. In fact, when you get dressed in the morning, you can wear a linen garment, you can wear a silk garment, but don't wear a garment woven of two types of material. Why? Because when you get dressed every morning, I want you to remember there's one God. No nuance. Anyway, I guess, I guess now we don't have to preach that sermon. That was done. Okay. But unclean, unclean. Well, one of the things that would make you unclean would be an issue of blood. And that means... Uh, 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 women of a certain age are, are ritually, perpetually unclean during a, a certain time of the month. And, 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 and to have an issue of blood that never stops means you're perpetually unclean. And, 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 and so that means she can't go to temple. She can't go to, to synagogue. She can't uh, 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 be part of her religious community. You can go back and read it in Leviticus chapter 25. Anybody that she touches is unclean, uncleanness is transferred. That's why, you, you, ever, you ever hear about these lepers in the Bible and the lepers had to go around saying, unclean, unclean. Why did they do that? Because according to the law, they would, it, if they didn't announce their present and you, presence and you bumped into them, you could be made unclean. So this woman, according to one commentator, was actually not even, everybody she touched in that crowd was gonna be made unclean. She touches the rabbi, he's gonna be unclean. Now he can't go preach in the synagogue. One commentator said she was, in fact, supposed to be in quarantine. This is the most modern text imaginable, quarantine. Can you imagine? Some of you, 12 years. You went crazy after 14 days. You, I, there's only so much TikTok that you can make. Eventually, 12 years she's in quarantine. So unlike Jairus, who can at least approach Jesus openly, she figures, I can't do that. I can't just go up to Jesus. He's going to know what my disease is. He can't lay hands and heal me. But you know what? What if, what if she had heard reports, verse 27, about Jesus, and she came up behind him? What if I sneak up behind him? And I know I'm not supposed to do this, and I know I'm supposed to, I'm going to make other people clean. But I want this, I want this healing more than I want anything else. And I'm willing to do what I got to do to get to Jesus. And if I just touch his garment, because she heard the superstition that, uh, that if you touch his garment, you'll be made well. So she's unclean and her theology's all wrong. But what, 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 what would he expect? She hasn't been allowed to be in the synagogue for 12 years. I think she can be forgiven for her theology being a little rusty. In fact, do the math. Do you remember? Who's the ruler of the synagogue? Jairus. Do you remember how old Jairus' daughter that died in this story? Do you remember how old the girl was? She was 12. And this woman had had an issue of blood for 12 years. So do the math. The last time this lady had darkened the doors of the church was on the Sunday they were, well, the Saturday they were throwing Jairus' wife a baby shower. She went to Jairus' wife's baby shower and then hadn't been allowed back in. It's great for Jairus. Unspeakable pain for her. She thinks I'm not Welcome there. I'm an outcast. Now, there's an application I think you can see clearly and one that I hope, I don't think people see clearly, but I want to explain it to you and I hope you'll see it. The application you can see clearly is this. What did I tell you? His love is wide. And that means prominent people and outcasts. He loves you. And so I spoke a word to the prominent people. How am I going to speak a word to the outcast? I mean, you're here. You, you, you came, you, you know, but what about people online? What about people, I'm not welcome in church. I wouldn't be welcome there. 
How are we going to get to them the word that Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're prominent, Jairus, let me deal with you. Oh, you're an outcast. But for Jesus, you come. His love for you. If you feel like an outcast, you need to hear me. Jesus loves you. That's the obvious application. Here's the one that's less obvious that I think would shock a lot of people. You would be shocked at the people you are certain are Jairuses. And in their private moments, when they share with their pastor or they share with a friend, you know what they say? They feel like the woman with the issue of blood. You say, that's crazy. You're completely put together. I'm telling you, you would be shocked. The number one thing I hear over and over and over from well-connected, well-adjusted, godly people is, I'm lonely and we don't have any friends. And I'm saying, I wish you could be friends with the 12 other people that just came in today and told me that. Because what it tells me is we're all feeling it. Nobody's admitting it. Because when you look, everybody, they sure look like, they're in, they, sure look like they have a group. And, they sure look, and we're the only ones without friends. We're the only ones without community. You would be floored to realize how many people, you are certain they're gyrus, but on the inside, they, they're, they're just like this outcast. They feel so much like an outcast. And some of you, you know I'm talking to you right now. I'm talking to you. And it's that comparison there's a certain generation that is struggling so much with that. You, 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 you look around and every, look at their family. They're so put together and their kids like each other. <laughs> and they got it all together. And look at us, two words, hot mess. <laughs> you got to understand, you're not alone, but you're, you feel like an outcast. And do you realize everybody around you thinks you're gyrus, which almost perpetuates the problem. Because they just assume you're okay and you're not. Listen to me. Whether you're Jairus or you're the woman, or if my suspicion is right, you look like Jairus, but you feel like that woman. You need to listen to me. Jesus loves you. He loves you. The love of Jesus is wide. You know what this woman did? She told him the whole truth. Because here's what happens with comparison. Here's what I know about insecurity. Deep-seated insecurity and comparison. It's like an issue of blood. Once it starts, it's very hard to stem that tide. Maybe it's impossible without the healing touch of Jesus who looks at that woman and gives her something that can stem that tide. He gives her a new name, doesn't he? He calls her daughter. Now, there is a... Um, there is this moment when, you know, she reaches out. Verse 29, you can see that. And immediately she knows she's healed. So whether you're prominent, outcast, or somewhere in between, or you feel like both, he loves you, and he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks deep. And Jesus, now the narrative slows down here, and there's so much here. It's so rich. Verse 30 is incredible. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Have you ever considered that about Jesus? Has it ever crossed your mind that every healing miracle he ever did cost him? I don't know if that's normative, meaning I don't know if that's how it worked for every miracle, but if that's meant to be normative, that means every time, take up your mat and walk, blindness, be gone, deafness, over, demons, healed, sickness, gone. Every time we celebrate the miracle, the lame man walked, the dead man got up, do you realize every time that person gained, the man of sorrows lost. And when he looked at that woman, when the, when the woman receives the healing, he loses the power. Is this not foreshadowing of the cross? When he, do you realize when he brought Lazarus out of that grave, he knows for him to bring Lazarus out of that grave means he'll go into that grave 
See, it's his life for yours. Power went out of him. The love of Jesus. And he said, who touched my garments? Why does he do this? Who touched me? You think he was mad because somebody caused power to go out? No, 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 no. And of course his disciples think he's joking. You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus, what are you talking about? There are people everywhere. Oh, who touched me? Oh, I don't know, say all of them, <laughs> right? Uh, there's an application for Coleman, Alabama in verse 31, I believe. You can have all sorts of crowds real close to Jesus, but who's reaching out in faith? It's one thing to have a crowd pressed all around Jesus, but who's reaching out in faith? Jesus is everywhere in our city, in our county. There's Jesus bumper stickers, there's Jesus t-shirts. <laughs> I share the gospel with lost people and find out they got a home church. <laughs> How'd that happen? Crowds, but who's reaching out in faith? There's a difference in touching and reaching out. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Well, uh, he looked around to see who had done it. He won't let the matter go. And, you know, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, told him the whole truth. If you struggle with insecurity and you feel just like, you, you, you know, you've got this comparison trap you're in, there it is. Tell Jesus the whole truth. But why? Why does Jesus do that? Why? Jesus could have kept going. Nobody knew what happened but the woman and Jesus. Like, you almost wonder, wouldn't the classy thing to do just to be like, like, she gets healed? She's like, I can't believe it. You know, nobody knows it. Like, what, what? She's like, nothing, nothing. And Jesus feels the power, and he like, I mean, like, he doesn't know who it was, right? Like, he doesn't know. He does Jesus, you know, God does that in the Bible. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit, where are you, Adam? Okay, maker of heaven and earth, here I am. Like, come on, he knows. But here's this woman. Why didn't Jesus just be like, wink? Double guns, you know, like, and keep going. Then he could have gone and healed Jairus in plenty of time, and it would have been everybody wins, right? Why do that? I'll tell you why. Because he wanted that woman brought in front of everybody, not for the crowd's sake. It wasn't for Jesus' sake. It was for her. He was telling her a very important lesson. You don't need to sneak up on me from behind. You can look at me face to face. You're a daughter. You're a daughter. My Love is wide. Don't think for one second the prominent church people can have access to me, but not you. I love you. And you need to know you don't have to sneak up on Jesus. I know everything. So come, stand face to face, daughter. And that puts her, you'll notice, in the same place now as Jairus. You got two people at the feet of Jesus face to face. That's very different than sneaking up, so, sort of a, a drive-by healing, <laughs> you know. That's very different than sneaking up. I, I'll just dabble in a little bit of religion. Jesus, Jesus is not here to dispense a miracle. He's here to create a meeting. Jesus is not a vending machine ready to dole out this lady's blessings. Jesus wants a relationship. And that's why. And not for nothing, it is for the sake of the crowds, because now all the crowds can be like, see, she's clean. So any of y'all that had your doubts, Jairus, you happen to be a man of authority in the synagogue. I believe you should have a pew reserved for her next Saturday. Because go in peace. And also, I think there's some psychological healing. Everybody knows you can be healed, but not healed. Jesus says, you're healed, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, or healed you. It's the same word, saved, healed. So there's healing, then there's healing. He's after both. That's why he does it. Well, his love is wider than you know. And I think it's for the benefit of her that he calls her out and for the benefit of Jairus. Jairus, who we've got to get back to. Okay, 
We'd almost forgotten about Jairus. This is great for the woman. This is agonizing for poor Jairus, isn't it? Jairus is like, let's go, let's go. If you'll come right now, when he says my daughter is at the point of death, at death's door, literally any second she could expire and then there's no hope. So come on, Jesus, come right now. And he's going, I can't believe it worked. He's coming, he's coming. And then he stops, wave, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. Who touched me? What? And then he has this thing, and this woman, and it's 12 years, and Jairus is going, do they not teach this at Messiah school? The difference between chronic and acute. Do you know anything about medical triage, Jesus? She's had this issue for 12 years, and it had, she's not going to die. She, this girl's at death's door. This is the immediate problem. If she's had the issue for 12 years, what's another half hour? Right? Jesus. The man who would not be hurried. There's probably a sermon there about his time versus our time. Agonizing. Jairus is like being in the ambulance. The lights are flashing. The siren's blazing. And he is in standstill traffic on I-65. Are you kidding me? So close. And, And the Bible says, while he was still speaking. Do you see that? It's an important detail. While he was still speaking, while, while the words of Jesus were literally coming out of his mouth, daughter, I wonder if it interrupted daughter, I, I don't know, um, daughter, your faith has made you well. I wonder at what point, literally in that speak, spoken word, they came up and said your daughter's dead. I wonder if um, daughter and daughter were said at the same time. I don't know. It certainly could be. While he was still speaking, one daughter's called to life and Jairus gets the news he greatly feared. His daughter, dead. So why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother? But, but, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do you see what he did there? He gave Jairus a choice. He gave Jairus an implied question. Watch, his love is wider. My love is wider than you know. I love you, I love your daughter, and I love this daughter. Your daughter has had, listen, you, you, you've known your daughter for a lifetime. That's as long as she's been suffering. She's been suffering for a lifetime, Jairus. I love her, I love you, my love is wide, but my power is deep. Now, here's the question. I told you three people, two truths, his love is wide, and his power is deep. One question. Whose voice will you listen to? Whose voice will you listen to? Will you listen to those who say, why bother? Or will you listen to Jesus? Stop fearing, keep believing. It's a literal translation. Stop fearing, keep believing. What's it going to be? Because while, here's one thing I know, while the word of God is being spoken, the enemy creeps in to try to snatch it away. Some of you are under conviction. Some of you know you need to get right with God. And by the time you get to your car in the parking lot, Satan has already tried to snatch that away. Why? He wants you to listen to his voice and not your Savior's voice. I've, I've, I've given altar calls. I've given invitations. When I, I can't prove it, but my hunch is there's somebody doing spiritual battle. But the voices, one voice is saying, come on, you don't need to receive, don't receive Jesus. You don't need to come forward. You don't, I don't need to do this another time. What are, what are people going to think? <gasps> what are people going to think? He's gotten a lot of mileage out of that one, by the way. What will people think? So don't do it today. Do it another week. That's the voice of your enemy. Why bother? There's a pandemic. There's nations in an uproar. Why bother? And here's Jesus. Stop fearing. Keep believing. What's it going to be, Jairus? What's it going to be, church? Whose voice are you listening to this week? The problem? 
or the promise. It goes back to the same, the same thing. Who's it, who's it going to be? Which voice are you allowing to have authority in your life? Jairus, whether he's believing or whether he's just in shock, allowed, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, John, the brother of James, came to the house. Jesus saw a commotion. What's this? People wait, weeping and wailing loudly. These are professional paid mourners. Very weird in our culture, very common in their culture. Very common. You would hire, almost as a catharsis, you would hire these, these wailers. Even a poor person was required to have at least two flute players and a wailer or something. I forget. Something. Uh, 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 but there's some rule that everybody has to, you have to do it. You just have to have it. And whether you have to bar, beg, borrow, or find money, you, you got to provide these wailers. Well, he's got a whole room of them, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, and it's a sign of the grief and all that. Jesus comes in and says, why all the commotion? She's not dead. She's just asleep. Because of Jesus, death, sleep, no problem for me. And they laugh at him, proving for 2,000 years, haters going to hate. And what does Jesus do? He kicks them out. I love that. I, I, I never heard a sermon on that. But they laugh at him. And I, we don't know what was said. We don't know if it was just a look, but they leave. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The child's de- Oh, she's dead. She's not dead. She's sleeping. For one thing, that's insensitive, they think. For another thing, you are insane. You've lost your mind. We're professional whalers. We, ke- we check for the pulse. All right? We, 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 we know she's not breathing. Okay, she's dead. You do what you want to do because we're getting paid either way. So whale on, right? Jesus says, you, you must leave now. Or, or, or doesn't say. I don't know. Somehow, he puts them out of the house. Like driving the money changers out of the temple. Drives these uh, haters out, and they laughed at him. He, but he put them all outside and took, look at who he takes in. Child's father, child's mother, and the, the, the three that were with him, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. Ah, so it seems the synagogue leader has become the Jesus follower. Now who's leading who? And he does something incredible, verse 41. Taking her by the hand. Why is that incredible? If you're keeping score, that is now the second time Jesus has become ceremonially and religiously unclean according to the laws of Moses. They haven't changed. I went back and checked. They're still there. In the Torah, it is very clear. If if when the woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus, he's now ceremonially unclean and dead bodies, kind of a big one. Mentioned over and over, if you touch a corpse, you are now ritually unclean. Jesus cannot go in the synagogue. He cannot preach. He cannot teach. Why? Because the law of Moses says that's how it is. That's the law of Moses. That is the old covenant. The the only way you could possibly, for Jesus somehow, how is Jesus able to do this and not be unclean? There must be one greater than Moses. Sometimes it's hard to get your head around this. What does a New Testament Christian have to do with the Old Testament law? I mean, what's this business? Why aren't people with an issue of blood unclean today? Like, how do you relate with all this stuff? And what preachers tell you, and they're right, but it's, it's difficult to get your head around. What they tell you is this. They tell you, Jesus didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it. But you're left going, yeah, but what does that mean? This is what it means. The reason Jesus is not made unclean when the unclean woman touches him is because the minute she touched Jesus, she's not unclean anymore. She was made clean. And there's no law against a clean person touching a clean person in the Old Testament. Not at all. 
And the reason that little girl didn't make Jesus unclean is because by the time Jesus touched her, she wasn't a dead little girl anymore. She was alive, and there's no law against a non-corpse. Jesus didn't delete the law. He fulfilled it and surpassed it, and he gives us this new testament, this new covenant. And here's just two examples of how he fulfilled the law. So, takes her by the hand. She's not made Jesus unclean. He's going to make her clean. And taking her by the hand, verse 41, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which we don't speak Aramaic, so Mark graciously translates for us. Because that's what the, the reason, by the way, why didn't he write the whole thing in Aramaic and then translate it? Because if you were here, if you were Peter, and this is, by the way, this is why most scholars think Peter told Mark everything to write down. It's basically Peter's eyewitness account, and Mark just wrote it down, because Peter was there, James, Peter, James, and John. If you saw this, you would remember those two words for the rest of your life. And so when you retold the story, you would say, what he said was Talitha Kumi, which translated means, little girl, we would say, kiddo, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years old. And they were immediately, you see the immediately, overcome with amazement. I love this. Jesus doesn't do a bunch of incantations. He doesn't call down a deity. Uh, he doesn't do it in the name of somebody else. He doesn't do a bunch of mumbo jumbo. For him, it just, it just said, sweetie, time to get up. What's my point? It is easier for Jesus to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead than it is for you to get your 12-year-old girl up for school on a school day. Ponder that. If you don't believe me, any of you with a 12-year-old, boy or girl, go to them on a school day and go, Talitha, Kumi. <laughs> the power of Jesus with a word. Why, 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 why say anything to a dead person? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you realize what's here? Why say anything to a dead person? Isn't the point they're dead? They can't hear you. I mean, you get that, right? Jairus had some measure of faith, and oh, that woman with the issue of blood, that's faith. But I told you there were three people. I told you three. Jairus, the woman, and the kid. Tell me about the faith of the kid. What hope does she have? What do you have if you're dead? Let's all go to city cemetery and let's scream. Let me, I'll just preach and preach and preach, and we'll see what happens. Nothing. That's the whole point. So there's no hope. She's dead. But it seems that with a word of Christ, the dead can live. Romans says it this way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Apparently, his word is such that he can call dead men and women, boys and girls, to life. So, three people. Jairus, the woman, this little girl. Two truths. His love is wider than you'll ever know. And his power's deeper than you can imagine. It runs deeper. We thought you could just heal on this side of the grave. No, he's got power everywhere, over everything. And one question. So whose voice are you listening to? Musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. And as our brother comes and prepares to lead us in a time of response, I, uh, I need to address one last thing. I... Uh, I spent so much time on Jairus, uh, and then I spent so much time on the woman. And by the way, uh, uh, Mark technically doesn't call her the woman with the issue of blood. 
Mark, it's, it's very specific. It says the woman who had had the issue of blood because he knows she's about to be healed. Mark is implying this is the woman who Jesus healed. And I would I make a motion <laughs> that we uh, change forever from calling her the woman with the issue of blood to the woman who Jesus healed. Because uh, you, child of God, your name is no longer your shame. You're just the one Jesus healed. And he healed some of you of some very respectable sins. Good for you. He healed the rest of us of some creepy stuff. He's, we're the ones he healed. And we're not going to be known by our shame. We're going to be known as the one Jesus healed. Now, I, I spent a lot of time talking about Jairus, a lot of time talking about the woman. In fact, I'm still talking about the woman. So... But, I, but, I, but what about the little girl? I mean, we just said a few words about the little girl. So, I believe that Jairus' little 12-year-old daughter is a prototype of every born-again believer. I'll say it again. I believe that the 12-year-old little daughter of Jairus is a prototype of every born-again believer. Why do I mean by that? This is exactly what I mean. When she closed her eyes in death, we don't know what sickness brought her to that point, but when she closed her eyes in death as a 12-year-old, she was cut off from daddy, Jairus, there. She was cut off from her mama, all her loved ones, closed her eyes in death. But then, at the word of Christ, those little 12-year-old eyes fluttered open. And when that resuscitated girl, when that resurrected girl came, when she comes back to life, what's in her field of vision? When those eyes flutter open, what does she see? There, right in front of her, is the face of Jesus Christ. And what's he doing? He's holding her hand. And just beyond Jesus' shoulder, there's dad. There's mama. And just beyond dad and mama, there's Peter, James, and John staring there dumbfounded in amazement at Jesus. They're staring at Jesus, staring at her. Do you see where I'm going with this? There's a little girl brought back, and the first thing she sees when she opens her eyes in the resurrection is Jesus holding her hands. And just beyond Jesus, mama and daddy, and just beyond them, the gathered saints of God. Listen to me, church. There is coming a day when the sky is going to rip open, trumpet will sound, and God will say to his bride, Talita, Kumi, arise. And whether you were buried in one of these cemeteries out here, that body's going to come out and be glorified. Or whether you were, whether you were cremated, those ashes are going to somehow reconstitute and be glorified. Or if you were blown apart at sea, there will be a great roar as the ocean depths give up its dead. As the dead in Christ shall rise. And there, on our glorious getting up morning, when we open our eyes in the resurrection, do you realize we'll see the same thing? is that little girl. There in front of us is our Savior, Jesus, the Lord, 
holding us with a nail-scarred hand that bought our salvation. And just beyond Jesus, there's mama, daddy, all those who died in the Lord. And just beyond them is a multitude of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language such that no one could count. There's Peter and James and John and all my friends from First Baptist. gathered together in adoration and amazement. You don't get over this. We've got eternity to sit there and go, this guy raises the dead. And to delight in him and to tell the story and to meet this woman and to meet Jairus. Meet this little girl. He says, I see what you see. He says, I know. I saw it first. To behold that. This, this 12-year-old girl's past is your future, Christian. You believe that? That's coming. And after all that, Jesus is going to give us something to eat too. Morning. Don't you know of the marriage supper of the Lamb? What a feast that night. My daughter back from the dead, they didn't didn't just call the pizza delivery, okay? They had a feast. But even if it was a simple meal, it was the most joyous meal Jairus could ever imagine. And so too at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This this is our future. This is what's coming. So between now and that day, whose voice are you listening to? Why bother? Hmm? Or stop fearing, keep believing. Let's pray. God grant to us with everything we've got to cling in faith to your wide love and your deep power. God, grant to us that we might believe, that we might be filled with hope in a world that desperately needs some hope, that we will not listen to the voice that says, why bother? We will listen to the voice that says, stop fearing, keep believing. There are those who need to go to you now and fall at your feet. There are prominent people who feel like this woman and they need to tell you the whole truth. There are Jairuses who are desperate for a loved one and they need to fall at your feet and cry out. And there are believers who are growing weary who need to remember this little girl's past is our sure and certain future. So God, grant to each of us what we need. And if there's anybody who doesn't know you, let today be the day that they repent and stop with the pride believe in you and trust in you as Savior. Don't let them gamble with eternity for another day. If there's a step of obedience, let it be yes and let it be now. Don't let the enemy snatch away this word like he tried to do with uh, Jairus that day. It was unsuccessful. God grant us this. We ask in the name of the one who can raise the dead, Jesus. Amen. Some of you need to respond. You know you need to respond. You can respond right where you're at. You can respond by coming forward. But, but whatever you do, don't tune out a moment where God's speaking to you about faith, about believing. Stop fearing. Keep believing. Would you stand to your feet and ready your hearts to prepare? It could be you want to come forward, talk to Pastor Scott, who's healthy, and welcome back. Glad Scott's back here ministering with us. If you, if you want to just kneel at the altar and pray, you just want to pray where you're at, just, oh, let God have his way in your life, whatever that looks like.